Thanks for joining us at Fort William Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, Ontario. We are currently working through the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this book, we see the heart of Paul for God's people. It's a yearning for them to walk in the will of God and have close fellowship with the Spirit. As we delve into this book, we will see Paul's burden that the people find refreshment in the God who loves them, that they would fix their thoughts on God's coming, and that they would live lives that please Him, knowing how to live with and before a holy God. Scripture text for this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. This is the word of our God. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so encouraged this morning. You have taken up your reign over all things. You have authority over all in heaven and on earth. You are our king and you reign over all. We have nothing to fear, for you are the king. You've conquered death and Hades. You have their key. You are the strong man, and you have bound Satan. You are the reigning king, and you are a king of love and mercy, offering pardon and grace to sinners like us. We are encouraged this morning. And Lord Jesus, we ask this morning as we look into your word that you would extend your reign in our hearts, that you would take up your word and you would press it in us, press it upon us, that we might be changed. We ask, Lord Jesus, would you admonish us this morning? Would you encourage us this morning? Would you help us? We need your ministry. Come among us, preach to us. We pray. Amen. The Apostle's heart, the Apostle Paul's heart beat for ministry. Everywhere you look in Scripture and study Paul's ministry, you see that his heart beat for ministry. As you consider his lips, the message that was on his lips was always Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Jesus was always on Paul's lips because he was burdened with the gospel of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Paul said, Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And because of that burden, regardless of situation, it might have been fair weather, or bad weather, Paul did not waver in his determination. He said, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And driven by that glory, it was his desire to take this word about Jesus, this life-giving, life-saving word, 
to those who had never heard about Jesus. Romans 15, 20, Paul says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ already has been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And so we hear Paul's heart, his heart beat for ministry. He loved to forge new works in new places among people who never heard of Jesus. That was his heart. But we would be sorely mistaken this morning if we thought that was the whole of Paul's heart. Paul was not just an outward-looking missionary, always advancing, always moving forward. He too was a focused and caring pastor, devoting his time, his strength, his energy in order to build up Christians in the faith. In fact, when you, you study Paul's ministry, looking at it in the book of Acts and then through his letters, we see that Paul spent as much or maybe even more time strengthening Christians than he did in planting new churches. And we see it in the book of Acts and his epistles. He did this through his visits and return visits. He, he did it as, as through his missionary team, sending, dispatching men here and there, and also through all the letters he sent. Really, all of Paul's letters are about strengthening the church. And so we see that Paul's heart beat for ministry. And this has been evidenced in the book of 1 Thessalonians. He loved the church, and he loved to minister to the church. He told us in the book of 1 Thessalonians about his fatherly care for the church. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, Paul said, For you know how like a, a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He fathered the church, and he also told us in this letter of his motherly affection for believers. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 8. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And Paul goes even further in this letter. In, a, in, a, in an emotional appeal, Paul ties his life, his well-being, to the life and well-being of the Christians in Thessalonica. He said, chapter 3, verse 8, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For now we live. And so we see that Paul's heart beat for ministry. That was the burden of Paul's life. And so as we look this morning at Paul's conclusion in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, we should not be surprised that Paul's heart comes through in it. His heart beat for ministry, and so he, as he gives these closing instructions and commands, this heart comes up out through these commands. And this is what we find in verse 14. Amidst all of these imperatives for the Christian life, for the local church, Paul gives explicit instructions about ministry. And this is helpful for us because in verse 14, Paul gives us a ministry plan to understand, implement, and practice. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, verse 14. But before we work through Paul's ministry plan, sorting through the four commands that Paul gives us and all the interesting people that, that Paul places before us in this verse, we need to grapple with, we need to understand Paul's understanding of the church we cannot understand Paul's ministry plan unless we understand the foundation of that ministry, and that foundation would be the church itself. And so probably the best way to get at Paul's understanding of the church is by asking a question. Let me set up like this. 
you've confessed your faith in Jesus. And after confessing your faith in Jesus, you were, you were baptized in Jesus. Dead with Jesus, alive with Jesus. You went under the water, you came up, and after baptism, you went through the membership classes, you joined the church, you're in the church. Here's the question. After checking off all of those boxes, walking through all of those steps, what does God have for you for the rest of your life? What does God have for you for the rest of your life? What is the local church all about? Well, Paul gives us an answer, and he gives the answer to us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes this, And Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And we need to focus in on one word in those two verses, and that word is ministry. Every church member is to give himself, every church member is to give herself to what? To, to ministry. So Christian, hear this. God saved you, God redeemed you, God sanctified you. He gathered you into a people so that you might do ministry. Or to relate it to the question I ask you. You confessed Jesus, you were baptized into Jesus, you joined the church. What does God have for you? He has ministry for you. Just take note of how this works. God gives leaders to the church. He gives shepherds and teachers and pastors not to do all the ministry of the church, but that these men might train and equip members to do ministry, to do ministry. Now, as we think about this word ministry, it comes with a bit of baggage. You might be dealing with that this morning. This word might create some confusion in your head and in your heart. With this word ministry, you might start thinking of really big, grand things, things outside your comfort zone, things you're not equipped to do, like preaching sermons or leading Bible studies or, or taking on a ministry or moving to the other side of the world as a missionary. And all of a sudden, with that word ministry before you, you start thinking something like this. Paul, I, I don't think you understand me. I see what you're saying in Ephesians chapter 4, that every member is called to ministry, but that's not me. I don't understand how to do that. That's too challenging. It's too much for me. I can never do anything like ministry. But before we write Paul off, we need to listen to Paul again because he clears up this whole matter. He teaches what he means by ministry. So back in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Paul says this, filling out this vision. He writes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So according to, to Paul, ministry is weighty and challenging, and we should think that it is weighty and challenging, but we should not think wrongly about the weight and challenges of ministry. For Paul, the weight of ministry isn't the big things outside of our comfort zone, like preaching sermons or leading a ministry or starting a Bible study or moving around the world to be a missionary. No, for Paul, the weight of ministry is that each one of us, each member of the local church has been called to engage in a work of staggering significance. And what is that work of significance? It's seeing that our brothers and sisters would be built up, made mature in Jesus. This is what God has called each church member to do, to contribute to the body so that the whole body would be built up into Jesus. 
That's your ministry. To build up the body, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we ask, well, how is that done, Paul? What does this ministry look like? And we see in Ephesians chapter 4 that there are many different parts to the body of Christ. There are hands and feet, eyes and mouths, noses and ears. There's this great variation to the body. God in his wisdom has designed the church like that. But the remarkable thing about all of this variation in the body of Christ is what Paul says in chapter 4 verse 15. All of these different parts have something in common. Their ministry has this great commonality. Whether you're an eye or a nose or a mouth or an ear, every single part does this one thing. They all speak the truth in love. Every single member does that one thing. And when every single member speaks the truth in love, the body is built up. And for Paul, that's his vision of the local church this gathering of God's people who do ministry to each other so that everyone would be built up in Jesus by speaking the truth in love. Now, speaking the truth in love is a broad command, and we need some help. What we really need as we think about this vision that Paul gives us is specificity. We ask, well, Paul, what does that look like for me to speak the truth and love in my situation with the people all around me. And so what we find as we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, are specific directions for this ministry plan. So in our verse, verse 14, Paul tells us about the different sorts of people that we're going to meet in ministry. And he wants us to prepare to meet three sorts of people. We're going to meet idle people. We're going to meet discouraged people or faint-hearted people. And we are going to meet the weak. And Paul wants us ready to meet them. And in light of those three categories of people, Paul gives us three, three strategies, three ministry skills that we need to grow up in. We need to learn how to admonish and encourage and help. And so the plan is to just work through these three categories that Paul gives us, trying to understand these people and what's going on with them, and then learn how to do ministry to them. So let's start with the first category that Paul gives us. He says, admonish the idle. So the first person we're going to meet in ministry is the idle person. Now as we think about idle, idle might not be the best translation for us because when we hear idle, we automatically associate idleness in our heads with with laziness. And so when you read that, you might think of like a a middle-aged man lying on his couch, unemployed, watching TV with a huge bag of cheese balls open in front of him, just eating them. That's what he does all day, admonish the idol. So is that what we're looking for, Paul? I don't think so. What Paul has in mind is broader than laziness. So we get some help by looking at other translations of the text. For example, the King James Version translates verse 14 like this, warn those who are unruly, unruly. And that's helpful because the idea here that Paul is getting at is the undisciplined, the disorderly, and the insubordinate. That's what he's talking about. And so some examples might help. So think about a a military unit. So all the men in the military unit have been trained and drilled to march together. There is precision to their march. Each boot hits the ground at the same exact time as they walk through the parade ground. And they've been trained, they've, they've been trained to, to turn, synchronize. So all of the men, they march, they stop, they turn, everything is in order. 
And so you're watching this military unit. But as you watch, there's, there's one man. And he's a bit off. He's off step. Every boot hits the ground, but his boot hits a, a step later, a second later. They're synchronized in their turns, but this man is, is slow on his turn. And you look at this military unit and you say, that man, he's undisciplined. He's walking out of time. He's out of step with the rest of the troop. Or think of an elementary schoolroom. So the, the class is about ready to go out in the hallway and go somewhere else in the school. And what does the teacher do? The, the teacher gets all of the children into a line. Line up, everyone. And so everybody gets in a line, but then there's that one kid. There's that one kid refuses to get in line. He, he won't go. And as you look at this situation, you see that kid, that kid is disorderly. That kid might even be insubordinate. So that's what Paul has in mind. So what might this look like in the church? To be undisciplined, disorderly, unruly? Well, this could be theological. This person won't conform their thinking to sound orthodox biblical teaching. They won't go where the scriptures go. The scriptures set out this path and they won't walk in this orthodox path. The scriptures command this, but they say no. No, I don't think that's true. This could also be moral, and more so, it's often moral. This person won't conform their life, their behavior, their conduct to the teaching of the Scriptures. The, the Scriptures teach us how we're to live as Christians. We just went through our church covenant this morning, which is a distillation of Scripture, of how we're to live in this world. But they won't conform their lives to that standard. And of course, this comes in a different, all sorts of varieties. Some who fall into this category are, are willful and stubborn they have chosen this course of action, this way of thinking, and they are dedicated to this way of thinking from their heart, their mind, and their soul. Others fall into this category because they're simply gullible and passive and simple. Others are going on this path, charting out a course, and they just follow along with them. But whatever the case here, this person is walking out of step, out of line with the rest of the body of Christ, and importantly, out of fellowship with the Lord. And so if we were to minister to this person, Paul tells us we need to learn a specific skill. And the specific skill that we need to learn is the skill of admonishment. This is an interesting word for Paul to use because he's already used it in chapter 5. So if we go back a couple of verses to verse 12, he used it in his description of leaders. And so we learn that leaders are known for their work of admonishment. They are men who are known for their leadership because they go off and they correct others, teaching them how to live in Jesus. But what we see here is so interesting. What we see is that leaders aren't alone in this work of admonishment. Yes, leaders lead the charge, but all of God's people are given to this work. All of God's people share in this work. All of God's people need to learn how to admonish. So what does this look like practically? When a great article, David Paulson, on this very text, describes the work of admonishment, so I'm going to read. It's a paragraph, but it's really helpful. He, he says this. How do you admonish? When a specific form of unruliness is on the table, the counseling process will tend toward the clear-cut, direct, and even dramatic. When Paul said, admonish the unruly, he meant it. When someone gets out of line, you should speak up candidly and constructively. When you need to help straighten someone out, talk straight. Spell out right and wrong. Hold out God's justice, mercy, and power. You aim for a breakthrough, a moment of decision, of turning. 
The sin is obvious. The counseling approach called for is direct and lovingly confrontational. The analogy is with child discipline. Raise a defined problem directly and deal with it constructively. That's the work of admonishment. That's what Paul is calling us to enter into. And that paragraph is so helpful in how we do that work. Now, as we listen to that paragraph, some of what Powelson says makes us squirm. Confrontation, direct dealing, talking straight, saying right and wrong. And the temptation for us all is to draw back, to say, I can't do this work. This work is too much for me. It's too awkward. But here we have to grapple with what we're dealing with. We're dealing with not just some instructions. We're dealing with God's word. He calls us to speak the truth and love to that unruly brother or sister so that that unruly brother and sister might grow up in Jesus. And that's our goal, and that's why we would dare to do such a thing because we actually love that person. We actually want to see that person fully grown in Jesus. And so Paul calls us, admonish the idol. We can move to the second category that Paul gives us, and that's encourage the faint-hearted. And so the second person we're going to meet in ministry is the person who is faint-hearted. And we can literally translate that as this person is small-souled. As you think about it, there are so many things that can make your soul small, shrink it up like a raisin. So many things that discourage us and make us faint. For example, physical suffering does this. Cancer diagnoses, chronic pain, reoccurring sleeplessness, all of these things affect us. Our bodies affect our souls. And when we're dealing with these struggles, we grow discouraged. Our soul gets smaller. Or relational suffering. When there's trouble in marriage and in family, when there's distress at work, day after day, you're dealing with this tension. When you're separated from family and friends, these realities, these relational realities shrink our souls up. And then there's spiritual suffering. We suffer spiritually. We have to remember that we're fighting against spiritual foes of darkness. There are myriads of devils and demonic spirits, and these foes bring pains upon us. And then there's just the physical, normal, reoccurring humdrum of life that we face every single day, the small annoyances, the small sufferings we deal with on a day-to-day thing. And these little small things just wear us out and they make our souls threadbare. So here's the question. What, do we, what does this small-souled person need to hear? This faint-hearted person? Well, Paul says, encouragement. And Paul gives a specific prescription and we need to understand this. Paul is calling us to use wisdom and discernment. The faint-hearted don't need a word of admonishment. In fact, a rebuke in this case would be ministry malpractice. Here's the faint-hearted, the small soul, and you, you come with a sharp rebuke. Stop it. That would crush and demoralize the discouraged. And to think about it, To turn it around, the idle man doesn't need any encouragement. That unruly person doesn't need any encouragement to be more unruly. What they need is a rebuke. We have to ask, well, what does Paul mean when he says encouragement? So we're to give encouragement to the faint-hearted. What does that look like? Does it look like a pat on the back? You say, no worries, everything's going to be okay. Keep your head up. It's going to be good. I've got a feeling. Well, we don't have to guess because Paul has already shown us how to do encouragement because that's what the letter of 1 Thessalonians is all about. Paul is writing 
for the sake of encouragement. Just think about it. Paul has written to the Thessalonians. These people were suffering for the gospel. They were tried and tested by Satan. They were mourning the loss of dear brothers and sisters, some of whom may have died in persecution. And so what does Paul do to encourage them? Just think about it. He has spoken about God. He, he began by reminding these Thessalonians of how they received the word of the gospel, chapter 1, chapter 2. And why does Paul do this? To remind them that God has been at work in their lives. He has turned you from idols. He has given you a receptive heart, a heart of conviction for the word of the gospel. Now you're waiting for Jesus, and God has done all of that in you. I see it. I know it. Then Paul talked about his own ministry. Paul talked about his ministry a lot, how he ministered, why he ministered. And why did Paul do this? He did this to remind the Thessalonians that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ and that he serves God. And that God is completely and totally sufficient for all of his needs and all of their needs. And that they too should serve God. And then Paul talked in detail about the resurrection and coming of Jesus chapter 4 into chapter 5. Why? So that they would put their hope in God, in God who raises the dead. And so what does Paul do throughout this letter? He brings these suffering Christians to God. He brings them to the sovereign God, the God of election, the God who determined them for salvation in Jesus. He brings them to God Almighty, God omnipotent, who raises the dead from the grave. He brings them to the God of the gospel who gave his son so that they might not die for their sins, but that he might save them from their sins. He brings them to the God of grace and mercy and love. He brings them ultimately to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how Paul encourages these Christians again and again and again. He brings them to God. Don't you see him? That's what Paul does in ministry. So hear this. The small-souled need to hear of a big God. That's what we need in our discouragement and our faint-heartedness. And that's how we encourage our brothers and sisters in Jesus. We bring them to God. And if you've dealt with the small soul, or if you've been a small soul, or if you are a small soul, there's all sorts of questions that are going on. You ask questions like this, does, does God love me? Does God still love me? Is God near me? Because it doesn't feel like God is anywhere close to me. Does God care about me? Is God angry with me? Is God for me? Is God against me? What the small of soul needs to hear is of a big God. What's interesting is when you read the prophet Isaiah, he's doing ministry among God's people. And after chapter 40 in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah brings good news to God's people. Good news after good news after good news. But Israel has a small soul. They're discouraged and they're faint-hearted. And at one point, they say this to the Lord. Isaiah 49 verse 14. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And that's what a small-souled person says. They don't see God. They don't feel God. And here we need to listen to what Isaiah does because he goes to work and he preaches to these small-souled people. And what he does is he systematically brings them to God. So Isaiah starts dealing with their questions. Has God forgotten me? Isaiah preaches in response, chapter 49, verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. 
That's the promise of Yahweh. He will not forget his people. The small soul asks, has God's purpose been thwarted? Will this trouble I'm experiencing in the present go on forever and ever and ever? And Isaiah preaches, chapter 49, verse 20. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in it. What is Isaiah saying? Your trouble will stop. In fact, blessings will come in such a manner that they'll be too great for the land of Israel to hold. Make wide this land for more children. The small soul says, well, what about all of those enemies that are haunting me and hurting me? They won't stop. Isaiah preaches, verses 25 and 26. Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior. I am Yahweh's Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. But the small soul still says, does God care about me? Does he have any concern for me? And Isaiah brings the best word. Chapter 49, verse 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Are you small-souled this morning? Are you discouraged and faint-hearted? That's your God. And those promises are all true for you in Jesus What you need to see in your discouragement is the Lord, your God, your Savior, your Redeemer, the faithful one, the one who speaks promises like this. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. And brother, sister, do you want to do ministry to the faint-hearted? You need to follow Isaiah. You need to follow Paul. You need to bring the people in your life to God. Speak of God. Tell them God's promises. Remind them of God's character. Remind them of what God has done for them in Jesus. That's the work of encouragement. We've got one last category. The third sort of person we're going to meet in ministry is the person who is weak. Now, none of these categories we find in verse 14 are static, idle, faint-hearted, weak. You become idle and that's where you are the rest of your life. No. These categories are dynamic. People are always changing, always moving, moving from one category to another. And so throughout your life, you might find yourself moving through these categories. At some point in your life, you might be idle and you receive a rebuke and it helps and you're no longer idle. Or you might be discouraged. You're going in and out of it. And this is especially true for the category of weakness. Some are weak throughout the entirety of their life, whether it be from disability or illness, whether it's due to an accident, they're weak and they're always going to be weak until they meet Jesus in the resurrection. But here's the thing, in this cursed world, weakness is baked into the human story. No one is going to avoid this category. Just think about how you started your life. You started your life as an infant. You were completely helpless. You were weak. You depended upon your parents for every single thing you needed. And think about this. This is how you will end your life. You will end your life in weakness, depending on loved ones for support and care. Everybody is going to encounter weakness. And what Paul does 
is he calls us to help the weak. And very practically, it means we are to give aid and relief. We are to give our time and our resources. We are to supply their needs, especially of those who belong to the family of God, our brothers and sisters in Jesus. But I want to tell you this. This is more simple than aid relief. What Paul says here, help the weak, is something that is supposed to grab hold of our hearts. Listen to how Paul uses this word help in Titus chapter 1 verse 9. And this is helpful. He says, speaking of an elder, he must hold, and that's the same word that Paul uses in our passage, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So just put that together with me. We are to help the weak, or if in light of Titus 1.9, we are to hold to the weak, or to put it another way, we are to devote ourselves to the weak among us. And that helps. What Paul has in mind is not us just throwing our spare change at the weak in the congregation of God. That's not enough. That's not what Paul wants. He wants us to devote ourselves to their care, that they might have a permanent place in our hearts and our minds that we might help the weak. And so with that, we get Paul's ministry plan. We're going to encounter the idle. We're going to encounter the, the faint-hearted and the weak. And Paul tells us we need to develop these ministry skills. We need to admonish. We need to encourage. And we then need to help. And so if you're a church member, brother, sister in Jesus, this is the ministry that God has called you to. This is what God has for you the rest of your life, and you need to grow up into these things so that the whole church would grow up into Jesus. But if you're looking at verse 14, you notice we still have one more command to deal with. So Paul gives us these specific commands for these specific people, and he rounds off his ministry vision with this call. And Paul is calling us here, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. And Paul gives this call for good reason because it's hard work to deal with the idle and the unruly and the faint-hearted, the small-souled and the weak. And when the work grows hard, there's a temptation to become irritable and impatient. There's a temptation in ministry after a while to give up. And so Paul says, be patient with them all. A few examples that might click with you. You see that unruly brother or sister, and so you go to them in love and you give that admonishment. You're clear, you're direct, lovingly confrontational, constructive. And so you wait and see. You're looking for fruit that they might listen to you, and, and you wait. But you don't see any fruit. You don't see any change. You don't see any progress. And so you go to them again, realizing that you have to give this word of admonishment again. And so you go, but this time you go, and this time you're irritable. Your, your, your admonishment is tainted with anger. They're not listening to me. Or another example, you give encouragement after encouragement to a friend who is faint-hearted. They have a small soul, but they persist in their melancholy state. It's like they're stuck in the mud, and you're pushing, and you're pushing with encouragement, and they're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. And what's the temptation? You do that for a season of time. And you grow weary in encouragement. And you're tempted to do what? You're tempted to give up. I'm done with this. Hopefully somebody else can help them. Or another example, you help. And so you devote yourself to the needs of the weak. A weak brother, sister in Jesus. 
And you do this for a while, and you start gladly, and after a while, you're doing it out of duty, and then after a while, you grow really tired in it. And what are you tempted to do when you grow tired? You're tempted to start complaining. And so you say something like this, I am doing this work, I am helping the weak, but where is everybody else in this church? Why aren't they helping the weak too? Don't they see that I am tired in this ministry and that I need some help? Don't they care about this need? And so we complain. And here Paul comes to us and he gives us the word that we need. He says, be patient with them all. Patience requires long-suffering Patience is a work of endurance. It's staying the course, not giving up. Even more, patience is an act filled with faith. You can only be patient if you have faith, believing that God will somehow work in these circumstances. You can use your encouragement or your help or your admonishment. But patience is so difficult. And so we ask, well, how can I be patient? How can I grow up in patience? How can I persist in this ministry that God's given me? Well, hear this. Brother, sister, in Jesus, there are reserves of patience stored up for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the gospel of patience. Hear this. This is your story. When you were unruly, undisciplined, wayward, lost, God was patient with you. Through his many reproofs and corrections, through the preaching of his law and gospel, he woke you up patiently and drew you back to himself. Do you want to grow in patience? Remind yourself of that story again and again and again. This is how God has dealt with me. He's the patient God. When you were small of soul, when you were overcome and broken down, discouraged, hear this. God did not give up on you. He did not cast you aside. He did not become irritated with you because you were not changing. Isaiah 42, verse 3, here's a description of our Lord Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You want to grow in patience? You better dwell with that Jesus. Dwell with the patient, kind Jesus. Hear this, when you were weak, our God did not complain. When you were weak, our God did not grow bitter. No. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to grow in patience. All the patience you need is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Go back to it. Drink of it. Eat it. And this is how we do ministry. We do ministry in Jesus, through Jesus, by Jesus, drawing all from Jesus. And when we commune and are in fellowship with Jesus, we can be patient. And we can do the ministry that God has called us to do. So let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for your word. It is so clear and so helpful. We know your will for our lives. We have no confusion about it. And so now we ask that you would grant us all grace that we might carry out our ministry, speaking the truth and love. And we so desire that our brothers and sisters would be built up into fullness, into maturity, into Jesus himself. That's our great longing. And so we ask, would you give us fellowship with your son? And would it be sweet? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.